Welcome back, listeners, once again to the Fort St. David's podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bader, and I will continue reading from my first novel, The Pilot and the Panda, where we last left off was the first half of Chapter 2, and I'm going to continue and finish that, that second chapter, and I am also going to continue on to the third chapter, which is fairly short. Um, it's a snowy night here in Portland, Oregon, which is something you don't hear all the time. And, um, yeah, just, uh, did a little walk to the grocery store and, uh, I've frozen to the bone. It's crazy out there. Glad to be back in. Glad to be here with you f good people. Uh, so anyway, let's just jump right into it. And here we are. He's just gotten in the car with Judy. And uh, it ended with, with that we went, where they decided to drive off. And uh, it begins. We decided on Olga's Diner in Marlton, New Jersey. We didn't speak for the majority of the ride. We just listened to the radio as I stared out the window at the dark scenery speeding by. Rolling down Route 70 with all those sad-looking meaningless stores with their dull lights and heartbreakingly empty parking lots. How many times had I witnessed this useless scene? How many times would I see it again? The post-industrial, suburban, sprawling stretch of Route 70. A gutted-out land covered with a splattering of shops that sold things no one wanted to buy. The flash and streak of passing cars. The melancholic homes squatting in the distance. Who decided that things should be this ugly? Who made that decision? Who signed the form that said we would cover our lands in same-looking sameness? Pizza Huts and Walmarts and Kinkos and countless sporting goods stores and Exxons and Mobiles and McDonald's? What sick and twisted genius of industry concocted this empty facade of strip malls and high-priced gas stations with the sole purpose of sucking dry our wallets and sucking dry our souls? I wanted to shake his hand and then step on his foot, after which I was deliver a swift uppercut to the chin, or else just a gob of spit in his bloated face. We are the only country that creates our own barbarians. We make the natural world so ugly that there is no choice but to escape into programmed media, television, music, a synthetic paradise that hardwires our desires beyond tolerable limits and unleashes our youth into the streets with cars blasting loud music. Bodies dulled and tweaked by escapist drugs to destroy themselves in the empty industrial streets of the American consumer's dream. I, too, was created by this world, this post-natural, post-human environment. I, too, was made into a monster, fathered by the geniuses of capitalism and industry. And like Zeus, I would seek out my father and thank him for the job well done, and promptly proceed to strangle him to death. And that's one sort of, I just want to interject, that's one sort of angry uh, view of uh, uh, that stretch of Route 70 in Cherry Hill, which I went back to and everything I've written over and over again and, and it's gotten changed and it's it's worse and it's covered in you know big box stores and they got rid of the Garden State racetrack and it's a, a Wegmans super super supermarket now and uh and I sort of kinda like made amends with that whole place uh in southern New Jersey with a short story of mine called Cherry Hill, which I actually might read on this podcast eventually. I might start kinda taking a break from this book and read newer stuff and but anyway. Back to uh, the old Cherry Hill of the 90s, when uh, the youth were in the streets blasting music instead of at home on the internet. Uh, 
We arrived to a surprisingly packed Olga's Diner parking lot. Oh, let me just also, you know, and Olga's Diner is closed. So there's that also to contend with. We surprise anyway, we arrived to a surprisingly packed Olga's Diner parking lot. Judy parked the car and we got out. It struck me that I was very hungry and I knew that Judy would buy me dinner. And so it was with, was with the quick springy step of levity with which I crossed the night breezy parking lot and I held her hand as we walked up the steps with our metal railing and entered the warm diner. We waited a minute to be seated next to the sign that asked, asked us to do just that. And when we were shown to a booth in the back by an aged waitress whose face I'd never remember again. Oh, and then we were shown the whole place was brightly lit as per, per usual and populated by noisy late-night loser kids just trying to find a way to kill some time and see a familiar face or two. None of the faces were familiar to me, since it had been years since the great Olga's heyday and the old gang that used to haunt its brightly lit tables at the strangest of hours in the endless suburban night. But I was glad to be here, it and for a moment I felt very fine. Only for a moment. Judy and I began arguing again shortly after our waitress handed us the plastic laminated menus. We didn't really argue about anything specific. Rarely did. We just threw mean words back and forth like a vicious tennis game. And we both always lost. L-O-V-E. We had a knack for that sort of thing. I began to calm down after I got a chance to peruse the extensive menu. My thoughts drifting towards delicious sounding entrees. But Judy just sat there fuming. Come on, Jay, lighten up a bit, I said, putting the menu down. Her eyes narrowed and the hateful look continued. Don't call me Jay. Why do you always call me Jay? My name is Judy. That's what everyone calls you. Calls me. Exactly, I said. That's what everyone calls you. To everyone, you're Judy. But to me, you're Jay. That's because you're special to me. So I give you a special name. Get it? Not really. Not really. I think you're crazy. Overused word, count crazy five times in here, once in the car, twice in my place. That's eight times. That's a fucking lot. Time for you to purge your vocabulary of overused words. Can't you say anything else? I think you're crazy, Dave. I really do. You're crazy. Fine. Fine. Great. I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Crazy. Totally fucking crazy. You've established this by now. You think that I'm crazy. There you go again. The waitress came over before the verbal violence culminated. Judy, in faltering voice, ordered a salad, and I, in famished voice, ordered the chicken parmesan. The waitress walked away with our menus. And I assume I have to pay for that, Judy said. Well, yes, I said. Why don't you get a job, Dave? Statement, not question. Because I can't do anything. There's nothing in the world for me to do. So what do you plan on doing? I'm doing it. What? I said I'm doing it. I was born into this world, and I wasn't asked to sign any contract, and I didn't sign any contract. I just woke up one day, and here I was. My parents must have figured they wanted something like me in the world, so they brought me here. But I didn't sign anything, so why should I be obligated to do obligated to anything? When I lived with them, I did what they wanted me to do because they fed me, and they bought me clothes, and they put me through school. But now what? I don't owe anyone anything. I'm a free man. I don't want to work, so I won't. You have to work, Dave. Everyone does. Yeah? Says who? I didn't ask for any of this, and I didn't. I just want some food and shelter and love. That's it. I'm in the world, and I only have one obligation, to live. Well, you can't live without working. You think so? I can't help but live. I couldn't do anything but live. My organs transpire against any contrary wishes. 
Every fucking day they're at it, making the blood flow, keeping me breathing, digesting food, moving the bowels, and all that other fancy, complicated stuff. I mean, I don't even have to ask them to do it. They just ask me to live. They're just doing their job. I have no choice but to be alive. You're not making any sense. Of course not. I'm crazy, right? That's a point you're always trying to drive home. No response. Look, I don't know what the purpose of all this is in this world, in this life, but someone, someone obviously wants me here because otherwise I wouldn't be. So in the meantime, I'm going to spend my time trying to figure out what it is I'm here for. Maybe it's a divine purpose. Who knows? I could end up as the Pope. Imagine that. I'll never know until I figure it out, but I'm certainly not going to work. They just That's just out of the question. How can I find my purpose when I'm killing three-fourths of my day in a fucking office? Maybe you'll realize that's what you're put here for. To work in an office? Christ Almighty, I hope not. If God created us in his image, I certainly do not think he created a clone of himself that was supposed to spend the majority of its time in an office under a swath of fluorescence, drop ceiling, token water cooler. No, I think there's something else. Something else. Something else! What then, Dave? What is the magical purpose that you serve in the world that is going to make it so that you don't have to work like every other self-respecting human being? What is it? I'm dying to know. That's what I'm trying to figure out, Jay. She threw her hands up in the air in mock incredulity. Oh, you're impossible. The waitress came back over with our food, Judy's plate cold, mine steaming hot, and I dug in immediately. The chicken parm was good, served on a roll, and I devoured the tender sandwich in no time flat, taking the occasional break for a fat French fry or two. I dipped the fries in the tomato sauce that was dripping out of the sides of the sandwich, the taste fit for gods. I also ordered a second soda. Judy winced at this. Don't worry, Jay. Don't, don't worry, Jay. It's free refills here, I said in between bites. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah, my purpose. Well, like I was saying, I just don't know. I think it has something to do with my mind. I don't think my mind works like everyone else. I still can't figure out if it's deficient or superior, but I do know that it's different. I'll say. There you go again. Crazy, right? Well, whatever. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's the case. You, she, sir, seem to think so. You know, you know you can leave at any moment, if I'm getting too crazy for you, Dr. Judy. Well, who's going to pay for the bill, smartass? You can leave the money right here with me. I'll pay it. I swear. She didn't say anything. She just plunked her knife and fork and plunked down her knife and fork and loud ac exasperation on her plate and reached impetuously for her cigarettes. That's what she did when I irked her, in, into an, irked her to an unbearable point. She ceased talking and smoked. Well, I said, continuing at my own risk. Perhaps I can somehow use this mental superiority, or deficiency if that's the case, to make a living. Because the world has made it all too painfully obvious that I, what I need is money to get by. Judy decided to talk again. The cigarette must have assuaged her nerves. Oh, are you so sure about that? Money doesn't seem to be such a problem for you, as you said earlier, contradicting yourself. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am... Large, I contain multitudes, blah, blah, Judy said, snidely completing my Whitman quote for me. Overused quote count, Whitman. Maybe should read something else. My eyes widened. Did she understand the blasphemy of what she was saying? The good grade bard, well. Anyway, as I was saying, Judy said, smartly evading possible Whitman me lays, you don't let money become a problem for you. You just get other people to pay for everything you need. How convenient. You're right. It is convenient. But I can't go on living like this forever. I need to accomplish things, to get something done. So maybe I'll invent something. Then they'll pay me. Invent something? Oh, sure. 
I'll make something that no one has thought of before, something that will change the world, the face of history itself. I'll make my indelible mark, the grinning visage of me, Dave Baxter, permanent, irrevocable. Judy laughed. Oh, you laugh now, young girl, you laugh now. But just you wait and see. It will be a revolution in technology. People will never be sad again. The ultimate in economy. Thank you, says the young brilliant inventor, David R. Baxter, on receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. Thank you. I really, really don't deserve this. The crowd goes crazy. Mr. Baxter goes on to demonstrate the cold fission process that he is used to. I waved my arms around in the air like a showman. People at other tables were staring at us. Judy and I both laughed at my silliness. The tone now more lighthearted. Judy paid the check without protest, and we left. I suggested that we go to this treehouse that I used to climb around in when I was younger, back in Mount Laurel. No, Dave, I think I'm just going to take you home. I've had enough for one night. Oh, come on, Jay, don't get all sore like that. Let's have some fun for once. Come on, me and you. No, thank you. We subsided back into silence for the rest of the ride. Route 70 sped past us like it always did, welling up the same stifled feelings just like it always did. We, we crossed the river on the Ben Franklin Bridge, entered the city, and she dropped me off in front of the alley. Not a word said, not a kiss goodbye, not even a hug goodbye. I figured this was it. It was over with us. I walked down the damp, dark alley with its sputtering, failing street lamp back into my place, feeling low and not a little dead. Why couldn't anything ever connect, I asked myself. Over and over again, I felt I was caught up in a futile cycle of trying to throw out words charged with feelings, words that I formed into sentences with the best of my linguistic ability, sentences that tried, tried to convey certain questions, emotions, doubts, fears, hopes, aspirations, and anything else that I felt I wanted another human being to know. All I had were the words, and yet I felt like I didn't know words well enough. That nobody knew the words well enough. Not anymore. Not in this present day and age. The words were slipping from their moorings, losing their gold standard, bouncing like bogus checks. And that all we, we were now doing was spitting out sounds at each other, like primitive tongue-clicking tribes of savages. Or worse, sounds that didn't mean anything. The thought of this made me feel distant and alien. I was a, a visitor, from, visitor to a planet whose customs, communique, standards parlance, lifestyles, mannerisms, and ways were beyond all possible comprehension. There were things I wanted so badly to convey to Judy, dreams, ideas, concepts, perhaps just the, an, an appreciation of a certain arc of light resting on the side of a 4.30 p.m. red brick building, yearnings towards a new future, a new anything, things I knew I would, she would never understand, but it didn't matter because I didn't know how to say them in the first place. I didn't know how to say anything to anyone. I couldn't be sincere. I couldn't be insincere. I couldn't be anything, anything even remotely cognizable. There was a gap of 14 zillion miles between my fellow human beings and myself, it seemed. What were my other options? I certainly didn't know how to communicate with the animals or even use my hands to live off the land with plants, with fields, nature. Humans were my only choice and I was blowing it. That night, I stayed up in my room until the early sunlight, reading books and trying to understand words. And here is chapter 3, which starts on page 47 and takes us all the way to page 52. Here we go. The next thing I knew, it was summer again. 
There wasn't any subtle change. There wasn't any segue. There wasn't a cue. One day I woke up drenched with sweat. My room was sweltering sauna, and it was so bright I couldn't see a thing. Shit, I thought, it's summertime already. Now what? I spent most of my free time, that is to say, all of my time, walking around the city and thinking. This was the best time of my day, the walking, the thinking, the worrying, the feeling. That is, until I ran into someone I knew, which, in those early glorious days, was thankfully not often. I couldn't seem to exhaust the possibilities of these obsessive walks. I could walk the same route every day, hello, Kant, and still find something different and exciting to look at. Everything fascinated me. Wooden steps, iron rails, rusty cornices, stone gargoyles, bay windows, cracked pavement, Fading signs, tin roofs, doorbells, door knockers, peeling paint, old brick walls, garbage cans, graffiti, benches, domes, facades, street corners, a newspaper box with a half-empty 7-Eleven Big Gulp on top. Anything and everything seemed to be completely out of place and yet absolutely perfect where it was at the same time. It boggled my mind. Things, of course, were deteriorating rapidly between Judy and I. A maggot-bloated corpse roasted it, roasting in the summer heat, decomposing and fast-forward before my very eyes. It seemed as if there was absolutely nothing I could do. I tried and tried. I meditated on it during my daily walks. I took the path to go to New Jersey and walked in fields and consulted rabbits and birds and skies. I wrote long letters to her and crumpled them up, but every time I saw her, everything blew up in my face like a Chinese firecracker. It was futile. No matter what I tried to say, she either got mad or else she did not understand what I was trying to say, not in the least. By the middle of June, we found a replacement for Sal. A lanky, dweebish kid with dirty blonde hair, cruelly named Bert Johnson. Perhaps the biggest dweeb I had ever met in my life. And this coming from a kid who had never really gotten along in popular society to begin with. As far as I knew, he had no friends. At least, there was no one who called him or visited him. And besides leaving for work, he never left the house, not even on the weekends. Of course, he latched on to me immediately. Pretty soon, he was knocking on my door every day, more so than Larry. Eventually, Larry must have felt... Like someone had moved in on his scene because he actually, and I just could not believe it, stopped knocking and henceforth every time I heard on, a knock on the door, light, hesitant. I knew that it would be none other than Bert Johnson standing on the other side, waiting, patient, with, with, with trepidation. And sure enough, opening the creaking door, there he was, shyly grinning agog. It seemed that Bert had taken a fascination towards my life. Or maybe it was the mere fact that I was the only loser who didn't have the gall to set him off like everyone else did. He would shamble into my room in his awkward manner, and within seconds I was drawn once again into his strange, long, and often too painful life. I say painful because Bert gave the impression that the world had it out for him, that the joke was on him, that there were actual forces somewhere out there in the impalpable mists conspiring against him. He seemed an okay look he seemed like an okay looking guy for sure, but every girl in the world, and he made that implicitly clear, had a special vendetta out for Bert and Bert only. It was formulaic. It broke his heart time and time again. There wasn't a damage control unit big enough to sweep up the wreckage. Of course he had to illume me with every soul ranching detail, right down to the exact quote of the breakup line. It was painful. It was often. Uh, it was awful. It was often. It was meticulously detailed. It was his life. And the worst thing he would say was that she told me on the phone. That's the worst, Bert, I would say, leaning against the wall on my mattress and lighting up another cigarette to fight the merciless ennui that his stories brought with them. 
When she does it on the phone, that's when you know. Know what? You. That's when you just know she's a coward. But now, now you know. Now I know. Now you know that she isn't worth your time, Bert. Yes. You know what you need, Bert? No. Bert, what you need is a strong woman. One with a spine, you dig? Not a coward. Not a coward. Then he would give me that confused, almost dopey stare and then mumble something about how I was right. I was right. So right. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I never thought about it. Not like that. So right. So, yeah. Wow. Most of the time, I didn't even believe any of the claptrap clap I was feeding him. But there's nothing you can say to the brokenhearted. Believe you me. But still, I felt I had to say something to really cheer the kid up. It was as if... No, it, it was as if he had no one else. Nothing really worked, obviously. But as our relationship deepened, I began to take a genuine concern in the plights and woes of our hero, Burke Johnson. It wasn't just women that gave him problems. Oh no, the list went on and on. Merciless jobs, negligent family members, friends walking out on him, friends dying on him, misery piled upon misery. One setback after another, with no end or salvation ever in plausible sight. At times, I felt there was nothing I could do, to, that, that there was nothing that could save him, that he was a terminal case, doomed to a failure, hopeless beyond all hope, bring in Dr. Kevorkian. And yet I stuck with him by his side, listened to his stories with all their pathetic detail, and tried my best to give him something, anything that could possibly, just possibly, help. And when I saw that it wasn't working, and it never worked for Bert, I began to sincerely regret the fact that I'd ever agreed to let this doomed toad to ever live in the house in the first place. One fine summery day, he decided decided that he wanted to accompany me now on one of wanted to accompany me on one of my now in famous obsessive walks around the city. I grudgingly agreed, but only under the, under the precept that, he, that stopping in stupid stores or stopping to talk to anyone I didn't know was strictly out of the question and would leave Bert stranded, I'd cut swiftly down the first alley I saw and wouldn't look back. He duly agreed to this unwritten contract, and we took our leave out of the house. Though what we were doing was simple enough, wandering the streets of Philadelphia on a hot summer afternoon in June, Bert still looked like a kid in a toy store. I almost felt obliged to hold his hand as we were strolling down Walnut Street past the HMV. <laughs> ah, the old HMV. Like a music store. It closed many moons ago. Brief pause, undetectable by Bert to see if there were any cute girls working at the counter. We came upon the Center City Temple Building at Temple University, and since Bert was a Temple student, he stopped right there in front, hesitating. What did I tell you, Bert? I said feeling the pangs of anxiety as I noticed all the students milling around the building. I must have sounded like a patronizing parent. No stopping at buildings and no talking to people I don't know. It's summer now, he said. No classes. And I don't know anyone who takes the summer courses. That's great. So let's go then. No, 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 wait. There's something I want to show you. Show me. We can, we can get up on the roof. Roof. I thought about this. This roof. That didn't sound half bad. I said, okay, why the hell not? And we walked into the thankfully air-conditioned building. Bert flashed his ID at the security guard, and we got into the elevator, pressing the button for the top floor. When we arrived at the top floor, we walked past the chess club. Old people, concerned, engaged, checkmate. And through the door that said, do not enter. That was the entrance to the roof. We passed through the doorway and out onto the roof. The strong, high-altitude winds smashed into us immediately. And, it with it, and with it came a cool relief of being above the smoggy, hot depths of the city for once, 
glass and brick the glass and brick canyons constructed to conduct and can heat. The view was breathtaking. I suddenly felt outside of myself. I felt inspired. All those mind-boggling endless streets, unbelievable buildings, frenzied traffic, frustrated citizens, everything all at once stretched as far as I could see. I could see Maniunk. I could see New Jersey. I could see the fabled bridges. I could see the whole city and more lush with verdant summer foliage. I grabbed Bert's shirt sleeve out of sheer impulse. Bert, this is amazing, I exclaimed. Bert, you're a genius. And never, I haven't, I mean, I never would have thought that, oh. Bert just smiled and stared out over the simmering sprawl, obviously happy to have shown me something new. I lit a cigarette and stood there smoking and gawking at the whole scene. I've never been above the city before. It didn't make much sense, but I felt a funny sense of relief for the first time in a long while. Everything I was seeing was so weird and science fictional and so fucking wrong, and yet there was this hint of reality calculate of, of real there was this hint of really calculated beauty in the whole accent accident of it all. Like learning to see the beauty in a, in the mangled wreckage of a car accident, that distant sense of perfection in a man made disaster. But in this instance, the disaster was my city, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I was living in a mistake, it seemed. A huge, endless, mechano-organic mistake. And now all of a sudden it finally made sense why I, why all I could ever do, seem to do was make mistakes. Mistakes upon mistakes. When in Rome. Strange feelings and ideas brewed deep within a core, uh, within my core as I stood there soaking it all in, losing myself in it. My hands still clutching Bert's shirt sleeve. My nails perhaps digging into his shirt. Through the skin maybe, perhaps possibly drawing a little blood. And as I stood there feeling the shockwave of all this pouring over me, I felt the overwhelming urge to spill it all, all the bad things inside of me, all the atrocities I had seen, heard, had within me, as well as the ones I knew, and I just knew were on their way soon, soon. I would spill everything out and over the city and let it rain down like fire from heaven over the tops of the buildings and the tops of the cars and the spokes of bicycle wheel over every man... Uh, Every, every man, woman, and child in this goddamn town, all over it, all of it, all at once. Let them take it, I said to myself. I don't want it in me anymore. I didn't even really know what the it inside of me was. But whatever it was, it was eating me out alive. It was hungry for me. I didn't know what to do with it. The need for catharsis, total catharsis, total release, purge, empty. I looked out over at, over at Bert with wild, inspired eyes. He merely smirked smugly at the busy street below. How could I tell him what I was thinking? How could I tell him what I was feeling? What was inside of me? This it? How or where would I find the words? That was, this was impossible. This was useless. Everything was useless. God damn it. Overhead, blue screaming skies and huge fat clouds like marshmallows in a vat of blue paint. Beyond that, a blinding sun, white orbs shimmering. The sounds of the street were distant, almost ambient, but it felt like things were getting louder. I began to feel dizzy and a real case of vertigo was kicking in, making my stomach feel ill. I started to think about this huge gush of wind that would sweep across the rooftops, past the skyscrapers, knocking meandering burrs off their paths and finally swooping down upon us, bashing right into me, pulling me across the city and then plunging me to certain doom. My fate as a red splotch on the hot pavement sealed irrevocably. I gave Bert's shirt sleeve a judicious tug and said come on we have to go right now yes now 
He looked at me confused, confused like, and then followed me back through the door. I felt faint as we headed down the elevator and walked back out onto the streets once more, rejoining the human ants where we belonged. I did not utter a, a word for a good time. I was stunned and shocked by my vision. The vision of everything that I had within me, the things I didn't even know about. I practically stumbled in the streets, dazed. Bert didn't even bother to make any attempt to snap me out of it. Thank you, leave me to this. He just wandered along with me through the milling crowds, the hot smoky sun, the honking traffic, the burp and exhaust of septa buses. Sweep on, you fat and greasy citizens. <laughs> That's a Shakespeare quote. As I began to come to my senses, I, struck with, I was struck with this thought. It played over and over in my head like a broken record, that there was something intrinsically wrong with me, that I was different from everyone else. Oh, the thoughts and reveries of those of 19 years of age, God bless. For better or for worse, what, could they, what, what was there to do? I certainly could have, couldn't afford professional help. Ritalin, Prozac, Demerol, lithium, shock therapy? I had to help myself in whatever and whichever way I could. I resolved right then and there that it was my duty to write in myself what had gone so definitely wrong. We got back to our place and I spent the rest of the day and night in my room, just laying in my bed, musing, anticipating, calculating, worrying, resolving. At various, oh-so-dependable, interviews, there was a knock at the door, but I was adamant. I was steadfast. I would not answer. I didn't want to talk to anyone. It could have been God knocking for all I care. Not now, God. Busy was what I would would be all I would say. So summer was here. Summer was finally here, and what a long summer it would be. And that's the end of chapter three. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.